Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough for me, even if they don't. Today is June 13th, 2013, and this is episode 1149 of the Survival Podcast. We've got a cool one today. I've got a guy hanging on the line named William, and we're going to call him Billy, though, because that's what everybody calls him. He says, William, go lightly. And uh, he's a real estate agent in north-central Florida that specializes in the types of properties that we would call retreat properties or bug-out properties, basically rural properties, large tracts of lands, five acres to 500 acres. So I've done a lot of shows on this, but I've never got an agent on that talks about the entire buying process, the property search process, working with agents. I thought this would be a good one. We'll have him on in just a moment. Before we do, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today, Western Botanicals. Western Botanicals is the source for everything you can think of herbal. If you can think of it and it's an herb and it exists and it's legal to buy in the United States, you can find it there. Anything and everything, it's all organically grown or wild crafted. And if you don't know what you need, pick up the phone, give them a call. They'll talk to you. They'll help you figure things out and they'll tell you what they have that will work for you, including at times they will tell you that's really not something that we do. That's maybe something you should talk to your doctor about because they have that kind of integrity. They also have a great discount program It's $50 a year, and uh, it, pay, it, it gives you 25% off all their products, so it pays for itself. But members of the Support Brigade, you get that for free. You call them up, you give them a code, they set you up as a premium customer, and done. You have your 25% discount at no additional cost to you. So they're a great supporter of the show and the Support Brigade as well. Next up today, HarvestEating.com with the awesome chef Keith Snow, who will teach you to make cooking a life skill. He has a great podcast, a great blog, great videos, all kinds of cool stuff. Now making his home in the wilds of Montana and getting lots of great local food content going on up there. He's an awesome guy, a good friend of the show, a member of our expert council, and you should go to his website. It's harvesteating.com. When you do, make sure you subscribe to that podcast. But make sure you pick up some of his seasoning mixes, uh, including the Montreal steak, the grilled chicken, uh, and the northern Italian are all some of my favorites. And uh, frankly, when he came out with the low and slow barbecue and I started using that on brisket and pork shoulder, it kind of blew me away as well. So check it out. HarvestEating.com. Next up, want to remind you about Walking to Freedom. I put out a post yesterday that said, uh, you know, we want you to come over and vote on the final way that we're going to be handling the naughty list and everything. I've gone ahead and set the boards up the way that that poll is leaning right now. And there's basically only two options that are even in the running right now. So I went ahead and got all the boards set up, the boards for the ambassador boards, uh, so you can talk about your state, help people examine it, and I took care of setting up the naughty list because the list is going to be the list. But I still want to have your input. I want as many votes as possible. We're putting together some information, uh, some formal, like a formal report. Uh, it'll go out with a press release uh, probably around the 4th of July. It's going to be kind of a cool thing. So uh, check it out today if you haven't done so yet, walkingtofreedom.com. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members, and you help support the show at a whopping 18.3 cents an episode. But right now, it's better than that. If you use the discount code TSPSUMMER, TSPSUMMER, 
And when you sign up for your first year, you'll get it for $30 versus $50. Bucks. It doesn't apply to renewals, but it is your first year for $30. Bucks. It's a little sale in the summer. Uh, try to help me even revenue out. June is our lowest month of the year. It's not a big deal or nothing, but you know, when you look at a business, you analyze, you go, where, where's my slowest time of the year? And June's when everybody's kids gets out of school, people start taking vacations. So uh, I don't know that I've ever run a June sale before. I figured it was time to go ahead and do one, and I hadn't done one in a while. So there you go, TSP Summer is the discount code, uh, and gets your first year for 30 bucks. That sale runs till midnight Sunday. People have said, what if I already have an account? Can I use this to add time to my existing account? And you can, but you can't. Here's what I mean by that. I'm not AT&T or Verizon. I'm not screwing you over and saying, offer for new customers only. The system just doesn't work that way. You can't just go add a subscription and have it start when the other one you already have ends. It'll mess everything up. It'll mean that you'll get billed twice. You'll get double billed. So the only way I can do that for you, if you want to do that, what you need to do is print out the form, fill it out, and there's one on there that says renewal. Check the renewal box, but note that you have an active account with PayPal. What will happen then is when we get your payment, we will cancel your PayPal subscription for you, or you can do it yourself, but we'll cancel it for you if you tell us that that's the kind of subscription you have. Dorothy will then enter your membership and extend it using that payment, but now you won't be on auto renewal at that point. So when that membership eventually expires, so let's say you're at six months and now it's at 18 months, when you come up for renewal that time, you'll have to add a new subscription or something like that or send in another check or an ounce of silver or sign up with PayPal again or what have you. So if we can do it. But it's kind of a manual, tedious process, so we'll do it, but that's the only way we can do it and keep it organized. And with that, hey, Billy, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, thanks, Jack. I appreciate being here today. Hey, you're a real estate agent, uh, but it seems like you're specializing in in the type of stuff that we look for, uh, you know, with the Survival Podcast audience looks for all the time, this rural land. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Because, uh, it, honestly, you know, your profession's not my group of favorite people, but you seem like a really cool guy. <laughs> no, I, I appreciate that. I kind of get that from time to time. Um, I've basically always lived in a rural area. My parents actually owned property down in the Florida Everglades uh, about 20 years before I was even born. So I kind of very much grew up in a rural area, familiar with basically being out in nothingness. Um, we actually went through Hurricane Andrew in uh, you know the early 90s. And did fairly well compared to most people because my dad in particular had some very well thought out planning with generator and stuff and just, you know, a lot of different food storage and stuff at that time. So it's something that I would say for the most part, I've kind of grown up being around kind of in that culture and kind of just always trying to be prepared a little bit more than the general populace is. So we actually moved to North Florida in uh, 1994 and I've been here ever since then got into real estate a few years ago and I've never really worked in an urban area. I don't know anything about selling condominiums or zero lot line properties. Most stuff we sell is from five acre tracks on up to 500 acre stuff. So that's kind of what um, I specialize in. I thought I could kind of offer some stuff to the, to the listeners today. Tips, you know, if you're looking for a piece of property somewhere or, you know, you want to relocate, just kind of some different things to keep in mind. I think that could play into what we all, you know, kind of have as an end game goal, basically. Yeah, and let me just say, I mean, I'm a Texan now. I'm an adopted Texan, I guess you'd say. Uh, I've adopted them, whether they've adopted me or not, and I'm I'm staying here, and I'm not leaving now. But if I if I was gonna consider another location, I, I would highly consider Florida. And I don't think many people understand 
the the opportunity that Florida represents. It's a it's a very uh, let's say I would say a very free state in many ways, but it also it conjures up images of blue-haired snowbirds and you know <laughs> Miami Beach and South Beach and you know Daytona and Disney World, and I don't think people realize the vast amount of rural and remote property that actually exists in Florida. Yeah, yeah. definitely. I mean, I'm actually in a part of the state where I'm just to the north of what is the least populated county in the entire state of Florida. I mean, we're a very rural, very small town. And, yeah, I would say we get kind of the mindset slash bad rep for the Miami area, the Orlandos, the Jacksonville, and, I mean, that is a part of the state, of course, but there is so much of a swath of area in between all of that that, you know, often gets overlooked. So, and, and other places, you know, we have Castle Doctrine here, which with Zimmerman saying, you know, that's kind of in dispute right now, but, you know, we don't have any state income tax. The climate is good pretty much year round. I mean, there's just, there are a lot of opportunities here for sure. Yeah, and having uh, grown up at least partly in, in uh, Jacksonville myself, I can, and I'm sure it's probably more developed than it was back when I was a kid. But even in cities like Jacksonville, you're generally a few hop skips and a jump into the middle of a swamp or uh, or a pine forest. It's uh, it, it's not the place that I think a lot of people believe it to be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even those big metro areas. I mean, thirty minutes, forty five minutes, you can be out. You know and in a national force or something that looks pretty close to it most of the time. And before we get into, like, the general stuff, I'll also say, you know, the other thing that I've always loved about Florida, it's a great growing climate for people that want to do the permaculture, agriculture thing. Uh, and I, I think we, everybody thinks of oranges, but there's a lot of climate variation there as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I actually have some family that's in um, organic farming, and, I mean, they're doing fairly well with it. I mean, South Florida was huge in agricultural other than oranges for a number of years. I mean, they grew tomatoes, bell peppers, beans, everything. And, I mean, that actually kind of, I want to say, went a little bit downhill because of all the development they had done and has moved more up to the northern end of the state here where I'm at now. So, yeah, I mean, there's farming, all that kind of stuff. There's there's a lot of opportunities here. The ground, for the most part, is is really good for it. All right, well, let's kind of get into the meat of it then. I mean, I was looking through some of the notes you had prepared for me, and you actually said you have some ideas uh, to help get some uh, income out of out of vacant land. And I think that's really interesting because there's a lot of people that that's kind of what they want as a first step. They want a piece of land. They don't necessarily need a house. Uh, they're trying to get into that land ownership mode. And if you have a way to offset the expense, it makes that goal a little bit more attainable. So what are your thoughts around that? Well, there's a couple of different options. I mean, the biggest one, the most popular one here in my area is timber and pine straw raking, which, you know, a lot of people that aren't familiar with that kind of scratch their heads. But basically, as you plant pine trees for timber, you know, that's going to mature in probably 17, 18 years, from the time about six or seven years of age going on, there are companies that basically come and rake the pine needles for use in landscaping applications. And if everything's, you know, right with the trees and all the conditions are well and you maintain it, you'll get about 75 bucks an acre per year off the property just raking pine needles. And that's a good way to basically, A, keep your ag exemption on property if it qualifies for it, and B, just pay your taxes and whatever you get over that is, is gravy and, you know, paying for the property. Um, when you've got clear land, you know, you've got options with, you know, talking with, uh, you know, local farmers and cattle people 
you know, a lot of them will basically do the same thing. They'll put some cows on the property or they'll row crop it or something, you know, in order for you to keep the egg exemption on it. And, you know, you get some payment back on that most of the time, too. So those are two things that you can definitely do with vacant land that I think a lot of people overlook to basically keep the cost of keeping them, you know, to a bare minimum. I really had never heard of pine straw raking as a business. Um, I Maybe it was because my experience with pine straws when I lived in Florida. If you wanted pine straw, you just grabbed it. But thinking about it, that's a... It's a and it's a pretty soft use of the land as well. It's not like you're gonna you know strip the earth if you're just taking the fallen pine straw. Yeah, and it and it does take a little bit of nutrients from the ground if you're growing specifically for you know timber cutting down the road. But in the meantime, I mean, yeah, it's it's a very low impact thing. They have laborers that come in and basically hand rake it and they bale it into what's basically equivalent to square bales like you would have for hay. And hmm. um, they load it up, and yeah, they sell it to the landscapers. That's that's a big thing in this area. Wow, wow, that's uh, something. This, this must be a little bit newer than my uh, 25 years ago residence of your state. I <laughs> uh, just I never heard of that. That's cool though. Um, you also you, you mentioned timberland. A, a lot of times you'll find an opportunity to buy land that it looks pretty rough though. You'll see someone has just done a timber operation and timbered out land. They've got their profit. And yeah, they could replant it, but they're with pine. Maybe they're 18 years out from another harvest, and they'd rather dump the land and take the capital and do something else with it rather than wait 18 years to reharvest. So they'll sell that land cut and stubbled. Um, what are your thoughts on people buying land like that? Yeah, I mean that's totally something that happens pretty often, actually. And and here's the thing, you know what? If you're if you're trying to go at this from you know you want to basically acquire acquire as much dirt and ground as possible. I mean, you cannot beat cut over timberland because the prices in most cases are half of or less of anything else that you would get. So, of course, you've got an expense that you have to look at of cleaning up the land eventually. But for, you know, the amount of money you're going to spend per acre, you're not going to find anything better that's going to be usable than cut over timberland. It, it does, in my opinion, also offer some advantages that you can either just let it sit and rot down. I mean, as far as, you know, the tops and stuff that they cut out in the stumps, which will take a number of years, or you can, you know, come in and clean it up with equipment stuff if you want. But for people that are looking at alternative energy stuff, I mean, you can, you know, use the wood to burn. You can use wood gasification. I've actually talked to some people that basically took the timber debris and piled it up and made like barriers around the property and kind of use that sort of as a, as a buffer from, you know, their main site where they're wanting to do their house and their camp type area. So, I mean, there's, there's some different considerations with that other than just looking at it and saying, oh man, that's ugly and I can't even drive across it. I mean, there's, there's some different, um, angles you can definitely work with that. Well, I think there's also, from a permaculturist standpoint, um, I would rather, if there's two different pieces of land available and one's been cut and one hasn't, I'd rather work the, with the one that's been cut. I'm not going to have any ethical dilemmas of do I actually cut an acre here or not and what is the value of I mean, somebody's already done it. And at that point, I can go in with you know equipment and start basically earth surgery. And with earthworks and new plantings, I can then create a designer system that will be far more valuable to me than a stand of pines. But yet I don't have to cut a stand of pines to do it. Exactly. You've already got that one big step done for you. And some of the big conventional farmers that are actually kind of coming up to this area from South Florida and from other states are basically doing that. I mean, the sellers for these big 
timber tracts are reserving the timber rights. They're cutting the trees off and keeping that money and then selling the land to these big row crop farmers to reduce price because of exactly what you just said. Yeah. Yeah, because that's, that's been done now. It's, it's, it's over and done with. That, that makes perfect sense. Um, what about finding water sources? Which ones seem to work out the best for people? I mean, everybody thinks about oceanfront living in Florida, and that'd be great and all, but you, you can't water your crops with, uh, with it, and you can't drink it. I mean, you can fish in it, and that's cool. And I, frankly, one of my favorite places in the world is Sanibel Island, but uh, if you want to do any of the stuff we talk about, you need a good source of fresh water. Yeah, definitely. And and here in our area, we're we're what they call the Swanee River Valley, which we have like three or four really main rivers. The main one is the Swanee River. You have the Santa Fe River, the Chituckney River, and then a little further north is what they call the Withalacoochee. But this whole area is kind of, there's just a lot of different water sources. I mean, you can buy property that's on a river. You can buy property that's on a lake. And Sometimes you can get lucky and buy property on a river that actually has a freshwater spring on. I mean, there's a few of those available. They're spendy, but, I mean, you've got what's, you know, basically then a whole freshwater supply of water that's, for all intent and purposes, I mean, they are not going to expire and go away. And we went through a real period of drought here a few years ago. And a lot of the rivers got really low, but, I mean, probably 95% of those springs, they stayed active and pumping. It might have been reduced to a trickle, but they were still pumping fresh water out of the aquifer. So, I mean, it kind of comes down to what are you comfortable with? I, I talk about river property with people, and the big conception of it probably is, oh, well, it's all lowland swampland around the river. And that's true in certain areas, but it's like anything, the topography of the A 20-acre piece that's maybe on the high end of the river where the banks are tall and the river doesn't rise up that much. Or, yeah, you could end up with a track that's down on the lower end where whenever it floods, it all fans out. But there's there's many different sources with that. And there's even, um, when you get kind of in the river basin areas, there are properties that have uh, springs that basically bubble up out of the ground and then run, you know, 65, 70 feet and go right back under the ground. And they have no connectivity to the river or anything like that. I mean, there's there's some really unique uh, properties with features like that around here. Well, that's cool. I think, I mean, the water is a huge thing. And the other thing you got going on there in Florida is you have this stuff that many of us at times wonder if it still exists called rain. You do get quite <laughs> a bit of rain in your state. Yeah, yeah, we do, and I mean, like I said, we went through a period of drought a couple of years ago where it was pretty bad, but we uh, seem to kind of be getting back on target with the rainfall on stuff, but I mean, yes, it's, despite it being named the Sunshine State, we do definitely get a lot of rain. Well, I remember when I was a kid, we used to have what we called the 4 o'clock, the four o'clock shower. Uh, it seemed like it just rained every day at 4 o'clock, uh, 4.30, just like it was on a timer or something like that. Um of course, then you get the summer heat and the steam off the road. So uh, kind of on that note, one of the ways I've seen to get a better deal on property is to uh, to get a property that doesn't have county or state road frontage on it. And you have to you know travel with some sort of an easement down a dirt road or something like that, or even maybe it's not really a road at all. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, exactly. And and. What happens a lot of times with these properties, particularly in the rural areas like this, okay, 
say there was originally a piece of property that was 300 acres that had frontage on a dirt road. And at some point, it got split up where there was basically a front half that fronted the road and a back half that didn't. And what they have to do to basically keep that back half from being landlocked is basically write in a deed, a legal easement that typically ranges from anywhere from 30 feet wide on up to 60, just depending on how the surveyors did it. But what you get is basically a piece of property that, for all intents and purposes, is less valuable and less marketable to the average buyer because it does not have any kind of frontage on a county-maintained road, but you've still got legal access to it. And you also a lot of times have a lot better seclusion on that track of land versus something that's sitting on, you know, a main highway or even, you know, something that winds down a dirt road. If people are driving back up and forth in front of it all the time, you know, you maybe just kind of want to have a little trail that goes back to a place that you can put up a gate and just be done with it. And those types of properties do typically sell for less than something that fronts a road. And I think for a lot of people would maybe even be, you know, preferable compared to something that sits on a road. Oh, definitely. Uh, I completely agree with that. But, I mean, one of the things I'm always concerned with when I look at a property like that is, is that access guaranteed or is it on a handshake with somebody else? And I think it's important that you have that guaranteed access. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And there's there's different ways to do that. The One is with a survey. I would, like, always recommend somebody, whether they're looking here in our area or anywhere is have a survey done on the property prior to purchase and make the purchase contingent upon the survey being done and being to your, you know, acceptance. Um, you know, you might find something, you might end up, you have an easement across the property you're looking at for somebody else to access theirs that you maybe don't want people driving up next to you just as much as you want to make sure you've got access to a property. Um, when you get a survey done, you know, they, they check all that out. They go back through all the old deeds and records have been done at the clerk of court's office for anything that's been bought and sold, and they're able to find out, you know, exactly what that is. And there's different types of easements. There's easements that are um, exclusive and non-exclusive. A non-exclusive easement would basically be anybody that touches the easement can use it. An exclusive easement means it's yours. You can put a gate up. You can block it off. You can do whatever you want with it. Um, so, yeah, definitely check that out. And a surveyor is the best way to do that. And the second way is whenever you're closing on a proper property, typically here in Florida at least, we have title searches done by title agents, and they issue what we call title insurance, which basically guarantees that the property as you're buying it is as it's being presented to you. If, if a surveyor performs a survey and says, okay, yeah, you've got you know a dedicated easement going to this property, nobody else has the right to go across yours, this is the survey, the title insurance is basically going to guarantee you up to the entire purchase amount of the property that that's the way it is. I mean, you'd have to come back and make a claim if it turned out otherwise, but that's something that 99% of the transactions that are done here in this state is, is sold with, and that's something that goes on the burden of the seller to basically prove and show that to you. They're purchasing that. They're showing to you that you know this is the way the property is, and it's basically guaranteed in that title insurance policy. I think that's extremely important. I, I've never bought a, a property uh, without that. Yes, and it's it's extremely important. You know, there are people um, in certain different types of sales where you can't get it. Um, you know, if you buy something on a courthouse steps, for example, or on a tax certificate or tax deed, 
Um, a lot of times title insurance isn't immediately available until they've been able to do some other stuff as far as research. But, yes, by all means, title insurance, you really shouldn't even be buying anything without having that on it because, I mean, you could end up with a piece of property that's, you know, not what was basically conveyed to you originally, and, you know, you're you're basically out on your tail then. Yeah, definitely. Um, what would you consider to be, like, the ultimate property, if you were thinking outside of the box from an acquisition standpoint, like the perfect thing or the, the ultimate opportunity? I mean, to me, and I've got one piece of property I will say is not the perfect one, but it's pretty close to it. Um, it's 561 acres. It's got like a three and a half million gallon a day fresh water spring on it. You've got your water source. It's got enough cleared land that you could make a, whatever you wanted for farm area. It's got some, you know, hardwoods and some woods and stuff on it still. For me personally, I want something that's secluded. I want something that I can get to in a hurry if I need to. I want something that's big enough that I don't really have to worry about what the neighbors think of what I'm doing or, for that matter, not even know what I'm doing on it. Um, and I want to be able to have the topo- topography of the land in such that it's got enough high area that I can build a house, I can build a shop, I can have all my stuff, not worry about any flood zone area. But at the same time, me personally, I kind of also want a portion of the land that all the water is going to float away from the high spot down to somewhere else. So you have to kind of look at what the surrounding lands and neighbors' properties and stuff are, too. I hate to be this way, but I'd rather the water run off of my property onto theirs if worse comes to worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can see that certainly in some areas. In other areas, you'd be trying to funnel that water in. But when you have a large piece like that, though, there's almost always some part of it that's going to be suitable for building. And I think that's one of the uh, advantages of having a large piece of land. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in something, you know, that's 561 acres like that, I mean, for most people, they're probably thinking, you know, they they want to accommodate something, friends and family. You know, it's not going to be just, you know, a single person or a single family's compound, although it very well could be. But, yeah, I mean, even in that type of property, um, the counties have different, basically densities for how much you can build on it on that property it's like one dwelling per five acres so i mean you can imagine you know what you could do with that if somebody wanted to that's that's not an issue most of the time i i think one of the things people really do need to look at though because you just bring up an interesting point there is what type of restrictions exist yeah and and this is really really important to figure out and it's, it's a, a multi-angled thing to consider basically because there's there's restrictions and covenants that can exist from a subdivision and deed restriction standpoint and there's restrictions and covenants that can basically come from a county land development regulation use from you know permitting rules zoning use um that's really 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 important to basically check all that stuff out in my area here, we actually have now a surplus of land and little smaller properties that were broken up in the real estate boom of 2004-2005 that have deed restrictions on them. And while when I think of deed restrictions, subdivision is probably different than what a lot of people do, gated communities, clubhouse type stuff. And it's not really like that here, but there are restrictions as far as, you know, what you can put on the property, they don't want you to have, you know, and a lot of times it's quoted as junk stored outside, which one man's junk is another man's treasure. 
And you can also um, count on a lot of them having basically covenants in there that restrict the discharge of firearms. Even in this rural area, that's something that got wrote in on a lot of those subdivision deed restrictions. So you want to try and find a property, if at all possible, that does not have any deed restrictions, is not subject to any of that. Um, and in my area right now, those properties are actually basically commanding a higher value and price than the ones that do have deed restrictions, which is a total, you know, 180-degree flip-flop from how it was a number of years ago. Everybody was paying big money for, you know, these lands that were going to be developed into big gated communities and stuff like that that, that never happened. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that's something, I mean, that's kind of a deal killer for me. If, if you start telling me what I can't do with my own land, a lot of times I'm, I'm looking elsewhere. Um, it, it's dependent, though. I mean, where I live now, I don't have any restriction on the discharge of firearms, but my property's really not suitable for it. Um, so that, that kind of, you know, changes things. But if I'm going to go out and buy a hundred acres in the middle of nowhere and you're going to tell me I can't fire a gun on it, uh, I'm probably kind of out at that point. Yeah, and pretty much all of those larger tracks like that, that's not going to be an issue. But when you get down into the smaller pieces between, you know, an acre and five acres, some 10-acre tracks that were split out of subdivisions, that is something you have to be very aware of. Now, there are some subdivisions that were done where basically the deed restrictions expire over a 10-year period after it was originally broken out. Um, that's something, you know, when you're looking at a property, not saying to totally rule out something that is in a subdivision because there's, there's properties that are in platted subdivisions but don't have any deed restrictions as well. It's just something you need to really, you know, check out. Go to the county clerk's office, get a copy of the deed restrictions yourself, read through them, you know, make sure that it's exactly something you're comfortable with. Um, you know, on the county side, that's normally a little bit more straightforward as far as, you know, what you can and can't do. Typically, you know, here we have different zoning districts, and that's basically where the county has blocked out, you know, different areas of land throughout the county and said, okay, this is zoning district, you know, ag one, ag two, residential, et cetera. And they already basically have predetermined rules and regulations on what you can do in those areas. And here especially, I mean, it's pretty relaxed. I mean, for all intent and purposes, unless you're just really trying to do something like a nuclear waste dump, they don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking of the person that moves into you know a 10 acre property and says I can finally have my my flock of 15 chickens and uh, a few uh, you know American guinea hogs or something like that, and all of a sudden somebody's going, oh, that's against the rules. You know, that's that's something you need to really head off in advance. It's easier to find a place where it's acceptable than fight about it after you get there. Yes. Absolutely, absolutely. And and there are plenty of 10-acre tracks and, and ones that size out there that don't have deed restrictions and aren't subject to that. But when you're looking, it's something you need to make a good distinction between the two. And, you know, if you're working with another realtor, an agent or something, tell them right up front. Anything with deed restrictions is, you know, just like do not pass go, do not collect $200 for me. And, I mean, that will certainly make the search easier for you and them also. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, you, you'd mentioned some stuff about agricultural stuff. So there's limits and things like that, like minimum land sizes and all. And then there's greenbelt stuff. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So here in my county, they've basically changed the minimum amount of acreage to get greenbelt status or 
agricultural exemption for tax purposes to 20 acres or more. Um, it used to be 10 back in the day, but, you know, they had a lot of people that came up here and, and bought smaller tracks and, and weren't really doing anything ag with them. We're just taking advantage of the tax benefits. So they actually bumped that to 20. And anybody that already had it is basically grandfathered in at it. But anything now that's purchased a new owner is, is 20 acres or more. And basically what that does is it, it gives your, your property a different sliding scale for taxable value. The, the taxable value on a 20 acre residentially, you know, taxed property, uh, versus a 20 acre agricultural exempted property is night and day. I mean, you're probably looking at 60% or more difference in taxable value. So, you know, when you're looking at properties and we were talking earlier about, you know, raking the pine straw and stuff, I mean, you can pretty much easily pay for your yearly property taxes with a pretty sizable track, um, and have that taken care of. And if you end up with a smaller piece where you can't get the ag exemption, I mean, you are going to be subject to a higher tax rate. So that's something you should definitely check out in the area you're looking at to see what their rules are on that. And here in Florida, some of that is basically at the discretion of the property appraiser. So, you know, you might want to go and have a chat with them and say, you know, I'm buying this piece, you know, what's what's the deal on it? Can I get ag exemption? Um in, in all cases, ag exemption has to be qualified with a bona fide agricultural um, activity. And they define that as, you know, something's basically making money. So, you know, pine straw qualifies. If you cut hay and roll it for cattle or something, that qualifies. If you got farmers got, you know, cows on it, if you got some row crops or something, that's all good. If you just got a field growing up with weeds in it, they're not going to give it to you. <laughs> <laughs> So you've got to do something that's for the intent of profit. Exactly. Okay. Well, that that, that makes sense. You also um, we touched on surveys. Could you just maybe a little bit more on why it's really important to do that prior to purchase? Yeah, definitely. And and for the reasons we were talking earlier about, like with the the easements and the accesses and stuff, and particularly with title insurance, when we were talking about that too. Um, a title insurance policy without having a survey is really not at all worth near as much as what it is with the survey because what will happen is the title insurance policy will actually have a exclusion written into it that says, um, you know, not covering any type of uh, problems that come about with, you know, easements or encroachments or anything like that. So, Let's just say worst, worst case scenario here. You bought a piece of property without a survey. Um, you went out there and looked around at it ahead of time and you found some corner posts and some old concrete monuments and markers and say, okay, this is, this is where my boundaries are. Um, and then you buy it with title insurance. Nine times out of ten, what's going to happen if it comes back and say there was a, a neighbor's property or neighbor had been using a driveway on the side of that property for a number of years they can basically make a claim to that property because you did not have a survey done prior to and allow the title company to review that and basically work that into the title insurance. So it's really, really critical to get that done. Um, I mean, there has actually been cases where there has been legal descriptions that were wrote on properties um, years ago where the legal descriptions didn't actually close the perimeter of the property and because there wasn't a survey done the next person bought it and 
come find out there's title issues with it. It has to be gone back through because nobody had ever surveyed it since that was done, whenever that error was made in the legal description. And the property basically goes on infinitely on one side because it doesn't have the verbiage to come back in and tie the corner out. Okay, and so there's, there's that's a huge thing. But then you also mention like other kind of different methods of buying that sometimes maybe are worth the gamble where you can't necessarily get all this stuff done. I guess with you know buying on the courthouse steps, there should be a a, a plat. Uh, that the, the, the county or the, the whatever would have, because if they're taxing something, they should know what they're taxing. But you wouldn't be able to get the you know title insurance and things like that if you're buying a tax sale. But are those opportunities worth pursuing? Yeah, some of them are, and and this is something where you've got to basically be really really diligent in what what you're doing or who you're working with on doing that. I mean, there are some properties that can be bought on tax deed and on the courthouse steps that are really lucrative, but you basically cannot get title insurance issued on that whenever you buy it at the point. You can probably work something out and get a title insurance policy later down the road after you bought it and they went back through and reviewed it, but you you can't get that at the time of sale. Um, and, yes, the county a lot of times will basically have on their tax roll drawings and diagrams of how the properties are supposed to be laid out. But, again, referencing back to the one that had the incorrect legal description, um, you know, the, the county doesn't basically check any of that. That's not their job to go back through and see, okay, well, this legal description is incorrect or this legal description takes in, you know, 40 acres of Joe's field that was sold off in 1976, but the legal description was wrote incorrectly. Um, yeah, they just want their tax money, and if you're dumb enough <laughs> to pay it on land you don't own, they don't care. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so, I mean, there are definitely deals that you can get, you know, at courthouse sales, um, buying tax certificates and holding convert converting them to tax deeds on property. Um, and, and even, you know, there's some different types of government surplus lands and stuff you can buy also, which those are a lot of times a lot better bet than something like a tax deed or buying on the courthouse steps. And it's just something that you've got to research. you got to kind of look at the property in person before the sale. you got to go and do some research at the clerk's office yourself or hire a title agent to basically run a search for you, see what the history was, make sure it's something that, you know, it wasn't, um, you know, something where the person died and was intestate without any will, where it's been probated and there's 15 heirs tied up in a thing that's got a claim to it. I mean, you can get into something really, really nasty, and you can also buy something that's got back uh, assessments owed on it for, for code enforcement things and stuff like that whenever you buy those types of properties. So there's deals to be had, but you got to be really, really diligent in doing your background research before you do it. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense um, because it, it seems to me like you always hear some stuff about how you can buy, you know, this $400,000 property for 50 bucks or something like that. And I, <laughs> I think that's a bit of a, of a, of a yarn. Uh, maybe something like that happens once every thousand uh, years or something, but I, I don't think that's really as common as the late night TV guy says. Yeah, exactly. That's that's a lot of uh, after midnight, uh, you know, infomercial type stuff. I mean, you'll probably see properties on the courthouse steps. I mean, all things being equal, probably twenty twenty five percent less market value, unless you got somebody that just has to have it and, and, and bids it up. And while we're talking about that, I'll hit on a couple 
places and areas real quick you can kind of learn about those type of sales. The best is basically just go to your county clerk's office where your main courthouse is and your county seat and find out if they have a list for whenever properties are coming available. Mine here in my area mails out about two months ahead of time normally. They send you the, the current owner's name, what the parcel number is for, a legal description. Um, you kind of have to do your own homework then, find out driving directions to it, go and see it, and do that sort of thing. But you can get on that list or you know do some research online. Some of them post them on their websites whenever they're having the sales. And the best thing to do really is actually – go and stand or sit in on a couple of them and see how they're conducted. They're all, for all intent and purposes, a little bit different from, you know, every area's customs and stuff. And, um, you know, kind of learn some more about it. You might actually, uh, you know, meet somebody there that um, can kind of tell you some more about it and, and um, you know, learn a little bit from them as well. So I'd like to maybe kind of spring off from there a little bit into what are some creative ways that people can maybe even just shop for these properties, find the dadgone things? Because sometimes finding the type of properties we're talking about just seems very daunting. If I want to find a, a four-bedroom, two-bath with a freaking pool in the backyard, I can go to Realtor.com pull up a 1,000 properties with just about <laughs> any major zip code. But when I'm looking for you know 18 acres on a creek front uh, with no road access, a lot of times there's property available, but it's hard to find. Yeah, and, and here's the thing that a lot of people need to keep in mind is that, you know, all the properties basically that that are for sale are not always on, you know, the web or on Realtor.com. As, as agents, we have a lot of times what we call pocket listings, and that sounds like a bad thing, but basically what it is is when we've got somebody we know that basically wants to sell, but they don't want people coming in and out of their place all the time, or they don't basically want to commit for being on the market for six months or a one-year term that we would normally, you know, contractually obligate them to. So whenever we run across people that we're working with personally, you know, we'll think back or we'll go through our notes and say, okay, well, I actually know so-and-so has a property just like that that might work, and he was wanting to sell it, you know, about six months ago. Let me make a phone call and see if he still does. So get hooked up with somebody, you know, as an agent, you know, in your area that you're looking be personal and talk with them. You know, it, the Internet stuff is great, but you're really not ever going to get the full picture of what's available without kind of getting some boots on the ground or having somebody there for you to do some research from that standpoint. So, and how do I find an agent like you? I have literally wanted to strangle the last three real estate agents I've dealt with. I've had agents I've had to do their freaking job for them. I've had agents that don't listen. I've had an, my agent that I ended up buying this house with when we found, I said, I think everything here works. I just want to make sure there's nothing that prevents me from having livestock like my chickens and all. She goes, well, it's perfect. Just give up your chickens. I'm like, oh, I've been wow. working with you for six freaking months, and this is the entire reason we're doing this. What is wrong with your brain? <laughs> so, so, I mean, and I'm pretty tough on people. So, you know, you get to a point where you think, okay, I can work with this person, and sometimes you still really can't. So how do you find an agent that freaking understands the words that are coming out of your mouth and doesn't live by the real estate credo of buyers or liars? No, no, no. And And here's what – Here's what happens a lot of times, and I mean, you have agents that are used to working houses, and I said condos and zero-lot line places earlier, you know, when we were first starting off. I mean, that's kind of their bread and butter. That's what they do. That's what they know. So, yeah, you get somebody like you that says they want a house on 18 acres where they can, you know, raise chickens, and they're kind of – it's the deer in headlights look, I like to call it. So 
one of the things you can do is kind of check out what their inventory is, see what they have listed. You know, what if they've got, you know, houses that look like they belong in the Hamptons as their entire listing inventory, that's probably not the best agent to help you find, you know, a farm that you can do something with. If you got somebody that you run across that has, um, you know, a lot of different vacant lots or smaller tracts of land that kind of works the outskirts of town, stuff like that, that's probably one good factor and sign for you. Um, a lot of these sites, you know, they also have different, you know, reviews and stuff that you can do on agents. Um, you can basically call an office and say, I want to talk to, you know, your top producing agent in the office. A lot of times the receptionists and the brokers and the other agents don't like to hear that. But, I mean, that is one way that you can get somebody that basically is able to make stuff happen. And, again, you got to try and find somebody that, that is able to and familiar with working that type of property too. And in and, and my area here, for the most part, I mean, myself and, and pretty much all of the other agents here in this area, I mean, that's, that is what we do. I mean, there's the number of, you know, in town urban sales is, is very minimal compared to everything else. We're, we're the smallest board of realtors in the MLS uh, for the entire state of Florida by a factor of three. Um, so there's just, you got to really, you do have to definitely, kind of check the people out, you know, ask them a couple of questions. You know, you get somebody on the phone, you, you kind of got to do a little bit of an interview process. Ask them, you know, where are the properties that don't have deed restrictions? Where are the properties that that aren't, you know, part of a platted subdivision? Um, ask them, you know, how many places they've sold that, you know, aren't in those type of areas recently. And, I mean, you can kind of get a pretty decent feel for somebody normally you know, whether they're used to working that type of property or, you know, it's, it's you know, a place that's on the end of a cul-de-sac with, you know, 90 other spec houses next to it. <laughs> and I think the, the, the answer of, well, I have access to everything is not the answer you're looking for at that point. Um, I know where they are. Here, let me send you some right now. I You know, I have a couple in mind. That's the answer you're looking for to that question, not I have access to the database. Well, so do I. Yeah, it, exactly. You want somebody that whenever you ask that question, they're going to rattle off and say, okay, well, this area of town, the north side, and that's kind of more, you know, rural up there, and they have, you know, some different creeks and rivers and stuff that run in that area. Or, well, you don't want to be down the south end of the county because, you know, that's a real low-lying land area for the most part down there. I mean, yeah, when you ask those questions, you want to listen for specific answers that indicate that people actually know what they're talking about. Yeah, and unfortunately, sometimes it's hard to find. Um, the other thing I think that a lot of rural property hunters run into with an agent is that often the person looking for a piece of rural property is in a totally different mode than the agent's used to. Most agents are very used to somebody saying, I want to live in town XYZ and my preferred area is here. Where a lot of times a rural property owner is saying, if it's within an hour in any direction of this place, that's good. And the broad nature of the search, I think, is something that many agents will struggle with because it's not somebody that wants to live in a trendy neighborhood and has selected the one school system that they want to be in. And a lot of times they really don't give a damn what the school district is because they're not looking for the land to build a house and have 14 kids on it. Yeah, exactly. And it, I, I'm kind of laughing to myself as you're saying that because occasionally I'll get a phone call from somebody that's from one of the more urban areas and – the question is, well, what is the best school district? I'll be honest, I don't even know where the school district lines fall in my county because it's <laughs> inconsequential for 99% of the people that are buying here. So, yeah, I mean, we, we do kind of get that from time to time. And it's, 
I'm laughing because it's just totally polar opposite here in this type of area. I mean, it, it's not uncommon at all for me to run 100 plus miles in a day with somebody looking at different properties spread over an area. I mean, that's that's a frequent, frequent thing. And that wears you out. It really does. I mean, even as a buyer, not just as an agent, I can tell you that we did that type of stuff. We looked. We pretty much said, this is where Dorothy's parents live. We want to be far enough out not to deal with anybody. And if it's within two hours, take a compass and draw a circle. And if it's far enough out and far enough in, it's good. And that's a big space. Yeah. Uh, when you start going 360 degrees, it's a big space. It is. And, and as an agent, what we have to fight with sometimes, too, is when you get into a particularly large area. And, and out there in Texas, you guys have so much land, it's probably not that much of a factor. But but here, let's say, you know, if, if I'm going down from Live Oak, where I'm at, down more towards the Gainesville-type area, then I get into the Gainesville Board of Realtors, and it's a little bit of a different setup. I can still work and sell property down there, but it's a little bit different of a process for me to basically search and find things out. Same thing if I go more towards over Tallahassee. I mean, I still run a probably 80-, 90-mile circle here in this area, but once you go outside that, then it kind of gets a little bit more convoluted because their systems and stuff for us to access are different and things like that. But, I mean, yeah, the differences versus working here versus somebody that will basically come as a buyer and tell the agent, okay, I want to live in this subdivision, show me six different houses a day, and you walk from, you know, one door down to the next one. I mean, it's just – it's a totally, totally different process. Yeah. Yeah, so are there certain things that if you were talking to an agent for this or for any purpose and you were you know, doing that before we worked together interview, if they answered a question a certain way or said a certain thing, you'd advise a person just to not do, to do business with that person? Um, yeah, I mean, there's a couple, in my opinion, red flags. I mean, anybody that basically won't get in the car and offer to go and look at property in person with you, I mean, it's one thing whenever you're – you know, preliminary starting to talk to somebody and they send you some profile sheets. But if if you say, okay, I pick out these five or six different properties, I want to go look at them. If the person tells you, okay, well, just go drive by them, and then, you know, if you like them, let me know, and then, you know, I'll get us in and we can take a look at them, or, you know, I'll call the seller then and make an appointment or whatever. That's That's BS. Whenever you pick out the properties you like and you're ready to look at them, I mean, the agent should be ready to basically drop what they're doing and go look with you at what you want. And that's, to me, one of the telltale signs of an agent that's really not working to the extent that they ought to be. I think another thing maybe we can have you comment here toward the end is some people already have land like this. Maybe they have multiple parcels and their thing is selling some of it and selecting a good agent to be on the selling side of this because it, it doesn't always work. Because generally how I've found agents, when you're making that broad search, is you find a listing that looks good, and I contact the agent that's the listing agent if I don't have one yet, because, well, if you have a property like that, you know, I would expect that you're used to properties like that. And what I found was quite often you'd have this person that had this listing because they knew somebody's cousin or something, and it was 60 <laughs> miles away from where they normally worked, and, and, and they weren't necessarily the right person. So when you're looking for someone to sell land like this, what are you, what are you looking for? I guess in some ways the same thing, but maybe you'd ask some different questions. Yeah, and, and here's what we have ran into sometimes, even over here. I mean, we're about an hour and 45-minute drive away from Jacksonville, and and there are sellers that actually will call and have, you know, Jacksonville agents come and list property over here. And not to, you know, downplay them, but the same thing that you just mentioned basically happens. 
I mean, you want to basically have somebody that lives in your area, is familiar with it, knows the ins and outs, um, is the type of person that basically will know the area enough where if they've got a customer in the car and the customer says one thing that makes that seller's property come to mind for the agent, they're going to be able to basically just turn the car or vehicle around the truck and go back and, and show it to them and not have to try and get a hold of somebody and, you know, another town two hours away to set it up and stuff. Um, again, it's, it's basically see who your movers and shakers are for agents in the area. Check and see who's doing advertising. Um, I hate to really throw it back on the advertising because there's people that have huge advertising budgets and just are poor agents, but that is one way you can at least see, you know, if they're spending big money for, all intent purposes, they're probably doing pretty well selling property. So that's one thing you can look at. Um, see what kind of a presentation they bring you whenever you're going to list the property with them or you're talking about it. You know, what, what kind of quality pictures are they taking of the property? What, what are their description writing skills? You know, ask them to bring a couple of their last listings with them, you know, whether it's something on the totally high end line versus, you know, something that's, you know, a $20,000 you know, house that's falling apart on an acre somewhere. I mean, you know, bring have them bring use what some of their inventory is and some of the stuff they've sold recently and, and, you know, ask them how long it took and how many times they had to reduce it and what percentage of, you know, the original list price they actually got out of it and stuff like that. I mean, those are those are questions you can ask and as you're getting those answers, you know, feel feel the agent out as they're answering them for you. Yeah, I do have to say I got a good agent when I sold in Arkansas, and what made me select her is she brought me, because I was selling a, a mobile home, which is a little bit different, and she brought me the listing of every single mobile home that had sold in the last 14 months in my area. Yeah. And there weren't a lot of them. There weren't a lot that had sold, and most of them sold under different types of conditions and things like that than a conventional sale. And that told me she knew what the hell she was doing with that particular property. Now, when it came to negotiating with a buyer, that's another one time where I had to do her job for. I think we need to respond to this offer. Well, they're $25,000 under, and it's not that expensive a property. So there is no counteroffer. Tell them to go blow. And that actually ended – she didn't want to do it, but that actually ended up being the people that came back and made a reasonable offer and bought the property. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's times where you just don't tolerate crap from a from an offer. It's just like that's just – you're just so out of the ballpark. We're not. There's nothing for me to say. Uh, but th- she did know the market for that type of property, and I think that's very important. Yeah, and absolutely. I mean, if if somebody's coming out to basically sit down and talk with you about listing the property, they need to be bringing comps for stuff that's sold. And and particularly here in a rural area, that's sometimes difficult because no two properties are alike, and there's not really a whole lot of sales in comparison to you know more town. Urbish, urbanish type area, but they ought to be able to bring you some comparable stuff that's sold in the last six months, 12 months, eight months, and say, okay, look, if we're going to put your property on the market. This is what I think the price ought to be, and I'm basing it off of these sales that happened in the last several months, and these properties are on the market now. And if, if somebody can't bring that for you, then you really, really should probably look at somebody different. I mean, that's that's like real estate school 101, number one thing right there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. And if they show up late for their first meeting without calling, they just don't yeah. be there when they get there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Lock the gate and leave. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, man, hey, this has been a great interview. I think it's it's kind of taken a different 
look at you know the whole concept of acquiring a, a piece of raw land. I've done a lot of shows on that, but this has gotten more into the nuts and bolts of pricing, finding, negotiating, working with agents, and uh, I appreciate you being here with us today on the show. Yeah, no problem. I appreciate it a lot, uh, Jack. Thanks for the, the opportunity, and uh, I've always enjoyed the show a lot listening to it, so I appreciate it. Well, thanks for being here. Um, and you want to tell folks, if they do want to work with you, you've got a website that can check out some of what you're doing, right? Yeah, it's uh, realtorsofnorthflorida.com. And like we talked earlier in the show, I know Florida is not really for everybody. But if you do some research on it and you like it, um, I think you'll be sold in particularly kind of on this rural north end of Florida. We have a lot of different tracts of land and stuff available that I think kind of fits what you know people are looking for. And I'd be happy to work with anybody. You've mentioned Jacksonville uh, a few times. So, are you you're west of Jacksonville? Yeah, basically, if you draw a straight line between Jacksonville and Tallahassee, I'm about smack dab in the middle in between. Them. Oh, that's so beautiful country. I, re- I remember that part of the state. That's that's got a lot going for it. Yeah, and I mean the Georgia line is like you know 15, 20 minutes right up Interstate 75. Um, if you look on a on an atlas, you see where I 75. And I-10 intersect town of Live Oak is about 20 miles to the west of that. And that's where I'm based out of. Very, very cool. Hey, I got it. And all right, folks, with that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Billy Golightly helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough for you. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way
shine as you 